Good morning, everyone. It's a great pleasure and honor to be with you here this morning. And I would also like to give my thanks to, to Jerry to give me another opportunity to come here and open the word before you this morning and evening. Please turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of the book of James. James chapter 1. And you can see from the bulletin that we'll be focusing particularly on verses 19 and 20, but I want to read this passage in its larger context. James chapter 1, starting at verse 19. And as you're turning there, um, I would like to give you a bit of an orientation here. You know, the epistles of the New Testament scripture are frequently concerned with ethical instruction. That is, we are told in the word of God what is right, what is wrong. We are exhorted as to what we should do and admonished as to what we should not do. And perhaps this ethical character of the New Testament epistles is especially evident in the book of James. So as we read this passage, we see that James brings up numerous topics. For example, being slow to anger, which will be our focus this morning. Being a doer of the law, not merely a hearer of the law. Laying aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness, as the text says, while meekly receiving God's word, keeping ourselves unstained by the world, visiting widows and orphans in their distress. But let us now hear the word of God, the words of the living and true God. Again, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls." But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let us pray together. O oh, blessed Lord God, Almighty God and Heavenly Father, 
eternal one. We do call upon you this morning that your spirit may be with us, that you may teach us many wonderful things from your holy word. Yes, Lord, even difficult things, things that may be difficult for us to hear. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would strengthen us and that you would encourage us and that you would illuminate our hearts and minds. Indeed, O oh Lord, may the words of God, may your words be pushed down into our hearts. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength and our shield. For we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The pastor, counselor, and author Paul Tripp gives us a vivid example of anger within the body of the church in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. At the beginning of the ninth chapter, Tripp tells us a story which almost sounds like a scene from a black comedy. In fact, it is so extreme, you don't know if you should laugh or cry. However, it is a true story based on his experience as a biblical counselor. Brad and Betty, of course, those are not their real names, were professing Christians in the church, and they were having difficulty, Tripp tells us, in their marriage. We read that Betty was depressed and would stay in her bed for a week, only to come out on occasion to get some crackers or to go to the bathroom. But then there was something more, something far, far worse. We read about how at one time the couple got into a heated argument. Betty threw a saucepan lid at Brad and he ducked, but it broke the kitchen window. Then we read that something in Brad snapped. He rushed over and slapped Betty across the face, and then she kicked him in the groin. And that began the first of many physical fights. They would throw pottery and lamps at each other, or whatever was at hand. In one fight, the physical battle actually extended from room to room so that there were holes in just about every wall in the house. The scene looked like a war zone. During another fight, their seven-year-old boy came out from hiding and began to hit or kick whoever was closest to him while screaming, I hate you. I hate you, I hate you. Now keep in mind, Brad and Betty were professing Christians in the church. But they kept their their rage and home battles a secret from the life of the body in the church. As Tripp comments, in that moment, that is the moment when Brad reveals all these things to him, 
Tripp says, I realized that the most personal and important parts of our lives fly under the radar of our typical relationships in the body of Christ. He says, we live frenetically busy lives with activity-based friendships punctuated only by brief conversations with each other. My friends, does this sound familiar to you? Now, you could say that Brad and Betty were certainly not quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, as our text says. And these violent episodes unquestionably illustrate what our text calls the anger of man. Yet James here provides for us some practical tips for addressing anger. And he also talks about the self-righteousness which often motivates our anger. My friends, brothers and sisters, we must put away the anger of man. We must repent from sinful anger. And this will be the focus of our message this morning. And we must humbly receive the counsel of the word of God set here before us this morning. So as we follow along in our text, we see in verse 9, or rather 19, some uh, given direction about what we can do with our sinful anger. And in verse 20, we're given some insight into what often motivates our sinful anger. And lastly, by way of contrast, I want you to think about righteous anger, especially in the life and ministry in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, just to repeat these three heads, first, verse 19, some direction about what we can do with sinful anger. Secondly, in verse 20, some insight into what motivates us to be angry. And then thirdly, what is righteous anger, especially as we see it in the Lord Jesus? So first, as we look into the words of verse 19, what are some of the things we find there that we can use to handle our anger? And right away, before we get into that, I feel like I must clarify a couple of things. In fact, if I didn't make this first clarification, you might object. But aren't you making an assumption that the anger spoken of here in James is a sinful anger? And secondly, are you suggesting that all anger is sinful? What about what we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26? Perhaps a familiar text to you. Be angry, which is a command, be angry, but do not sin. Well, this text in Ephesians is taken actually from the Greek translation, the Septuagint of Psalm 4. But in the Hebrew, the text may be speaking about fear instead of anger. So the words might be translated in verse 4 of that psalm, tremble and do not sin. Nonetheless, it is clear in the context of Ephesians that Paul is writing about anger. Similarly, as we look at the context here in James, it's clear that he's talking about sinful anger 
By the way, he uses this phrase, the anger of man. And speaking further about context, James is also identifying sinful anger in the third chapter when he writes, no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. But these things may become more apparent as we continue this morning in our message. Of course, the scripture does present righteous anger to us as well. After all, how else would we understand the anger of Christ, who is perfectly without sin? Yet, broadly speaking, I say, I believe it's fair to generalize anger as typically sinful because righteous anger is so rare, isn't it? Like a calling to lifelong celibacy, righteous anger is rare indeed. But what do these expressions in verse 4? 19 mean, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Mostly, they are quite straightforward, aren't they? But now let's turn and look at each one in turn. So first, we read that we are to be quick to hear. Now, this expression may seem a bit funny, uh, quick how, do you, how can you be quick to hear or listen? It sounds almost like a conundrum, like rushing to wait. But perhaps this is James' very point. We too often think of listening to others as just a passive activity. However, we need to listen attentively and carefully when others speak to us. I tell you, this is a way even to show the love and care of Christ to those with whom we converse, simply by listening to them. If I am not quick or eager to listen, I will interrupt, and I will cut off what others want to tell me. But when I interrupt, what is the message that I'm conveying to someone who's speaking to me? The message I'm conveying is that what I have to say is much more important than what they are telling me. In another well-known and related passage in the third chapter of James, he says that the tongue is a small member of the body, yet it boasts of great things. When we are not quick to hear others, we are boasting to them of our own self-importance and of their insignificance. Secondly, we read that we are to be slow to speak. Of course, this is a close companion to being quick to hear, isn't it? If you are not slow, but you're quick to speak, and you fill up the space with all of your talking then you will not be able to be quick to hear. In a similar sense, we read in the book of Proverbs, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. 
In his typically witty manner, the Puritan commentator John Trapp writes on our text that does not nature, he says, teach us the same thing that the apostle here does by giving us two ears and those open, but one tongue that's hedged in with our teeth and our lips. He also says, we read often, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear, but never he that hath a tongue to speak, let him speak. For this we can do fast enough without bidding. James also tells us in this passage that if someone who is religious is not able to bridle his tongue, verse 26, he says he deceives himself. My friends, the word of God tells us here, and the scripture cannot be broken, that if we are not able to control our tongues, then our religion is, quote, unquote, worthless. Thirdly, we read that we are to be slow to anger. Slow to anger. My friends, don't we often make excuses for our anger? Another Puritan, the Puritan Richard Baxter, points out in his Christian directory several excuses which we typically make for our anger. See if any of these sound familiar to you. It's just my temperament. I can't help but to get angry. Or... Uh, My anger never lasts very long, and I'm always sorry afterwards. Or, every one of us gets angry sometimes, right? Not even the best of us can avoid it. My friends, are not you and I prone to minimize our anger? You know, Jerry Bridges devotes two whole chapters on the subject of anger in his book, which is called Respectable Sins. However, sin is progressive. It's not static. Just as untamed lust will lead to adultery, anger left unchecked will eventually lead to hurting or even killing another person. Do you remember the Lord's counsel to Cain that we read of in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis? First, we read about how that uh, the Lord did not accept Cain's offering. And then we read that Cain was, and I quote, very angry. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen or why does your face look so dejected? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you. But you must rule over it. Of course, Cain did not heed the Lord's counsel, and he murdered his own brother, Abel. 
But do you see how it all began with the anger that was in Cain? His great anger. In fact, I think one of the wonders about the story from Paul Tripp that we, we spoke of in the introduction is that the married couple did not end up killing each other. In order to understand why we often minimize our anger, we must look at the dynamics of anger. The reason it is so difficult for us to be slow to anger is because even more so than other kinds of sin, sinful anger is all about our own self-justification. The very nature of the anger of man is a heightened sense of self-righteousness. When we get in a rage because someone says or does something, we judge it as being intolerable. And the spirit of anger rises up inside of us and we cry out, unjust, unjust. Look at what so-and-so did against me. And so you see the whole orientation in anger is how right we are and how wrong everybody else is. In the heat of your anger, what would be the most unbelievable thought to cross your mind? The most incredulous thing to imagine? It would be this. You know, maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) But no, when you are in a rage, that is the last thing you would ever consider. Finding fault with someone who's angry is like pouring gasoline on an open fire. And I want you to think about this. Don't we often get angry just because someone, maybe our husband or our wife or child, is not living up to our expectations? But we must ask ourselves this question. Do the expectations that we have for our loved ones agree with the Lord's expectations for them? And then, don't we often get angry with our loved ones just because we get annoyed? We get all worked up in a lather for mere trivialities. Nonetheless, we feel completely justified in our anger. My friends, what if your anger and my anger is simply born out of our own selfishness? You know, the truth is, more than likely, it is. The truth is that most likely your cause is not just. And you are just reacting out of your own self-centeredness and pride. As Thomas Manton says in his commentary here at our text, he says, anger is not to be trusted. It is not so just and righteous as it seems to be. And he goes on to say, 
do not believe in anger. My friends, don't you see? The cause of your anger and my anger is not trustworthy. You should not believe in it. But because we are blinded by our pride, it's hard to see the weightiness of our own sin. It is only by humility that we are able, and by the grace of God, are we able to be slow to anger. But let's turn now to the words in the 20th verse. The 20th verse we read, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The word here, which is translated as produce, or in other translations, accomplish or work, comes from the Greek word katergazetai, which is an emphatic form of the verb to work. And with the prefix kata or down, the word literally means to work down or to work out. So the idea here is to work and to work fully or to finish. In other words, James is telling us that our anger, the anger of man, does not work out or achieve the righteousness of God. The idea here is that no matter how justified you think you are in your anger, it amounts to nothing. Certainly not the grand cause of God's righteousness. But isn't it just like the pride of man to think that in our anger, we are actually being zealous for God and for his cause, when actually our anger may be borne out just out of our own self-centeredness. My brothers and sisters, you and I need to examine ourselves. In our anger, whose righteousness are we actually working for or producing? The Lord's righteousness or our own self-righteousness? And if your anger does not produce the righteousness of God, as the scripture here tells us that it doesn't, what then does your anger produce? Does your anger or my anger accomplish anything good for ourselves or for others? I know a case of a woman, it's no one you would know, who in anger threw down and smashed a wine glass on the kitchen floor. And afterwards, because she enjoyed it, she took another glass and smashed it on the floor. But what did her anger actually accomplish or produce? What did she gain from it? Just a fleeting moment of pleasure? It reminds me of the words of the Lord in a different context. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. When you think back to the last time you were angry, do you even remember why you were angry? After 23 years of marriage, I can remember with shame some of the times I was angry with my wife. But as I reflect on those times, I don't even remember 
what the arguments were about. Men, please listen to me. Is it a good thing for you to win an argument with your wife only to lose her fellowship and companionship? It reminds me also of a meme I once saw of a man laying outside on his driveway with his pillows and his blankets and his pet dog lying there next to him on the driveway. And the caption of the meme read, Relaxing after winning an argument with my wife. Now, I would be amiss if I neglected to speak about our children. As we saw in the example in the beginning of Brad and Betty's family, we must ask ourselves, how will my anger affect my children? And so I would like to ask you a series of questions for your own reflection. And please understand, I'm not saying that all these points necessarily pertain to you, but I would like you to consider them. Is it a good thing for your children to watch you and your spouse raise your voice at each other and fight in anger? When you are angry with your children, will it cause them to obey you more cheerfully? Will your anger cause them to be more efficient or effective in the tasks that you've assigned them? Will yelling at your children accomplish or produce anything more than making them timid or they themselves angry or bitter? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says that we are not... to provoke our children in anger. And in the parallel place in Colossians, we read, Fathers, do not exacerbate your children that they may not lose heart. Parents, do you exacerbate your children only to wonder later why they've lost heart? If you regularly yell at your child, what will be his or her takeaway? Will your anger help them to see Christ in your parenting? Are you bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Or are you teaching your children how best to form a habit of sinful anger? And what will your legacy look like when you see how your adult children deal with their own children? My brothers and sisters, and those of you who have been involved in ministry for years, how many times have you seen covenant children turn away from the faith, turn away from the church because of patterns of sinful anger in their religious parents?
Now, having considered various things about sinful anger, we should ask ourselves about righteous anger. What does that look like? What makes anger righteous? Well, for one thing, it depends on the objective of your anger, right? What are the objectives of righteous anger? God's glory. Your neighbor's salvation. Your neighbor's good. The last time that you were angry, was it either for God's glory or for the salvation or good of your neighbor? Or was it again only about you? Righteous anger is not inordinate, it is not over the top. Instead, righteous anger is proportional to the circumstance at hand. Righteous anger does not suddenly break out with words spoken rashly. Righteous anger is directed at solving a problem, not destroying a person. Hearkening back to our text, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, we might ask ourselves, but who did produce the righteousness of God? Was there anyone? According to Bollinger, the sense of the word here, righteousness, in our text, is the doing or being of what is just and right. He says that it signifies the sum total of all that God commands and approves. My brothers and sisters, does your anger work the righteousness that signifies the sum total of all that God commands and approves? But let's return back to our question again. Did anyone produce or work the righteousness of God? The answer is yes. In his perfect obedience, the Lord Jesus Christ produced or worked or accomplished the righteousness of God. My friends, when was the last time that you could remember seeing an example of righteous anger? Was it perhaps you were reading your Bible and you read of an account in Scripture about the anger of the Lord Jesus? In the Gospels, we read that Christ got angry when he purged Solomon's porch from the merchants and the money changers, as we read in John chapter 2, verse 17. He was also angry as we read him admonishing the scribes and Pharisees with those multiple woes in Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 33. And then we also read that the Lord got angry when he looked around at the hardness of men's hearts because they objected to him healing a man on the Sabbath day. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. So Jesus was angry for the sanctity of God's place of prayer and worship and against the hypocrisy of those who were appointed as shepherds over his people. Yet, 
Jesus was certainly slow to anger. In fact, according to the testimony of the New Testament, anger, even righteous anger, was not a prominent quality that we find in the Lord Jesus. Instead of anger, we more often see Christ's meekness in his earthly ministry. (laughs) Thank you, sir. And don't be confused when I speak about meekness. Meekness, meekness is not the same thing as timidity. Meekness is a kind of humility where one is slow to take revenge for oneself. Meekness is manifest then when one is slow to anger. Indeed, meekness is a quality in Christ that draws us to him, isn't it? As he calls out and offers himself to us in the gospel, he says, come unto me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And we read about Christ's meekness, his meekness, even as is prophesied in Isaiah. For example, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, we read, He, that is, the Messiah, the Christ, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. This is the very definition of meekness. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. We read in John chapter 19 that even Pilate wondered why Jesus would not defend himself. And Peter speaks to the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. We read, when he, that is Christ, when he was reviled, he did not revile back. When he suffered, he did not threaten but he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Indeed, the meekness of Christ is reflected in the very character of the Christian religion. As Thomas Mann puts it in his commentary on James, Christianity of all religions, this is a quote, Christianity is the meekest and most humble of them all. It is founded upon the blood of Christ, who is a lamb, a lamb who is slain. Manton goes on to say, And should a meek religion be defended by our violence? And the God of peace served with wrathful affections? Apparently, many in in today's generation believe that anger and violence is the way to address prejudice and injustice. But my friends, 
this is not the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither should this be our way, my brothers and sisters. We should imitate the Lord in His humility and meekness. Indeed, during His earthly ministry, some wanted Jesus to become king so He would subdue and rule over their enemies by force. But this was not the way of the Lord, was it? Christ's weapon for changing the world was and continues to be the gospel of peace. Jesus is the incarnate word from heaven with a sharp double-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth as we read in the first chapter of Revelation. But why is this picture of the sword coming out of the Lord's mouth? It's because the sword of the Spirit, as we read in Ephesians 6, is the Word of God. And Christ's warfare is not carnal or fleshly, but it's a spiritual warfare. What we call the church militant continues to grow throughout the world today, but its increase is by the preaching of the gospel. Not through physical violence or forced conversions as we see historically in the religion of Islam. Jesus is reigning now from heaven until all his enemies are put at his feet. And this includes today's violent movements which are opposed to him. Remember, Jesus says that it is the meek who shall inherit the earth, not the angry and the violent. Let's hear again the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ as he offers himself to us in the gospel. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My friends, doesn't the meekness and kindness of Christ draw you to him? Believe in him and place your trust in him so that as we read in 1 John you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In conclusion, I would like to return to the story of Brad and Betty. Now, as disappointing as this may be, Paul Tripp never tells us the end of the story. We don't know what became of this family. But what we do know is that sinful anger is most destructive and that its deadly impact can last a lifetime. We also know that sinful anger by its very own nature actually leads to the taking away of life. And we know that such violent behavior can be hidden 
from the life of the body in the church. But Tripp provides us with an insight that I don't want you to miss. Talking about how we typically relate to one another within the church, he says, to quote from him again, we live frenetically busy lives with activity-based friendships punctuated only by brief conversations with each other. My brothers and sisters, are our lives so frenetically busy that even when we get together for fellowship, we actually overlook one another? Are our friendships so activity-based that when we do meet, our conversations are far too brief and mostly superficial? And what about this? What if there's a couple in this congregation like Brad and Betty, but we just don't know them well enough to see how they struggle with their problems? Now, I do not claim to know how you spend your time, but perhaps what we all need is more informal time spent together as we care for each other in the spirit of Christ. Perhaps we need to make some sacrifices by by cutting out some of these activities that keep us so busy so we can spend more time together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Perhaps only then will we be free, free to sit down together at the kitchen table over a cup of tea or coffee and talk with each other at length about the deeper things in our lives. Let us pray. Oh, blessed Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for your holy word, how rich it is, how it teaches us, how it cuts us to the heart, but also, Lord, how you, through your word, build us up and encourage us. And so, Lord, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us throughout this day in our worship services and in our midst as we fellowship with one another. Oh, Lord, please pardon us for all of our many sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.